The third part of Chapter Thirty of Women in Love. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. Women in Love by D. H. Lawrence. The third part of Chapter Thirty. Snowed up. Gerald did not come in from his skiing until nightfall. He missed the coffee and cake that she took at four o'clock. The snow was in perfect condition. He had travelled a long way, by himself, among the snow ridges, on his skis. He had climbed high, so high that he could see over the top of the pass, five miles distant, could see the Marienhutte, the hostel on the crest of the pass, half buried in snow, and over into the deep valley beyond, to the dusk of the pine-trees. One could go that way home, but he shuddered with nausea at the thought of home. One could travel on skis down there, and come to the old imperial road below the pass. But why come to any road? He revolted at the thought of finding himself in the world again. He must stay up there in the snow for ever. He had been happy by himself, high up there, alone, travelling swiftly on skis, taking far flights, and skimming past the dark rocks veined with brilliant snow. But he felt something icy gathering at his heart. This strange mood of patience and innocence which had persisted in him for some days was passing away. He would be left again a prey to the horrible passions and tortures. So he came down reluctantly, snow-burned, snow-estranged, to the house in the hollow, between the knuckles of the mountain-tops. He saw its lights shining yellow, and he held back, wishing he need not go in to confront those people, to hear the turmoil of voices, and to feel the confusion of other presences. He was isolated, as if there were a vacuum round his heart, or a sheath of pure ice. The moment he saw Gudrun, something jolted in his soul. She was looking rather lofty and superb, smiling slowly and graciously to the Germans. A sudden desire leapt in his heart to kill her. He thought, what a perfect, voluptuous fulfilment it would be to kill her. His mind was absent all the evening, estranged by the snow and his passion. But he kept the idea constant within him. What a perfect, voluptuous consummation it would be to strangle her, to strangle every spark of life out of her, till she lay completely inert, soft, relaxed for ever, a soft heap, lying dead between his hands, 
utterly dead. Then he would have had her finally and for ever. There would be such a perfect, voluptuous finality. Gudrun was unaware of what he was feeling. He seemed so quiet and amiable as usual. His amiability even made her feel brutal towards him. She went into his room when he was partially undressed. She did not notice the curious, glad gleam of pure hatred with which he looked at her. She stood near the door with her hand behind her. "'I have been thinking, Gerald,' she said, with an insulting nonchalance, "'that I shall not go back to England.' "'Oh,' he said, "'where will you go, then?' But she ignored his question. She had her own logical statement to make, and it must be made as she had thought it. "'I can't see the use of going back.' she continued. It is over between me and you. She paused for him to speak, but he said nothing. He was only talking to himself, saying, Over, is it? I believe it is over. But it isn't finished. Remember, it isn't finished. We must put some sort of a finish on it. There must be a conclusion. There must be finality. So he talked to himself, but aloud he said nothing whatever. What has been has been, she continued. There is nothing that I regret. I hope you regret nothing. She waited for him to speak. Oh, I regret nothing, he said accommodatingly. Good, then she answered. Good, then. Then neither of us cherishes any regrets, which is as it should be. Quite as it should be, he said aimlessly. She paused to gather up her thread again. Our attempt has been a failure, she said, but we can try again elsewhere. A little flicker of rage ran through his blood. It was as if she were rousing him, goading him. Why must she do it? Attempt at what? he asked. At being lovers, I suppose, she said, a little baffled, yet so trivial she made it all seem. Our attempt at being lovers has been a failure, he repeated aloud. To himself he was saying, I ought to kill her here. There is only this left for me to kill her. A heavy, overcharged desire to bring about her death possessed him. She was unaware. Hasn't it? she asked. Do you think it has been a success? Again, the insult of the flippant question ran through his blood like a current of fire. "'It had some of the elements of success, our relationship,' he replied. "'It might have come off.' But he paused before concluding the last phrase. Even as he began the sentence, 
he did not believe in what he was going to say. He knew it never could have been a success. No, she replied, you cannot love. And you? he asked. Her wide, dark-filled eyes were fixed on him, like two moons of darkness. "'I couldn't love you,' she said, with stark, cold truth. A blinding flash went over his brain. His body jolted. His heart had burst into flame. His consciousness was gone into his wrists, into his hands. He was one blind, incontinent desire to kill her. His wrists were bursting. There would be no satisfaction till his hands had closed on her. But even before his body swerved forward on her, a sudden cunning comprehension was expressed on her face, and in a flash she was out of the door. She ran in one flash to her room and locked herself in. She was afraid, but confident. She knew her life trembled on the edge of an abyss, but she was curiously sure of her footing. She knew her cunning could outwit him. She trembled as she stood in her room with excitement and awful exhilaration. She knew she could outwit him. She could depend on her presence of mind and on her wits, but it was a fight to the death. She knew it now. One slip, and she was lost. She had a strange, tense, exhilarated sickness in her body, as one who is in peril of falling from a great height, but who does not look down, does not admit the fear. "'I will go away the day after to-morrow,' she said. She only did not want Gerald to think that she was afraid of him, that she was running away because she was afraid of him. She was not afraid of him, fundamentally. She knew it was her safeguard to avoid his physical violence, but even physically she was not afraid of him. She wanted to prove it to him. When she had proved it, that, whatever he was, she was not afraid of him, when she had proved that, she could leave him for ever. But meanwhile, the fight between them, terrible as she knew it to be, was inconclusive. And she wanted to be confident in herself. However many terrors she might have, she would be unafraid, uncowed by him. He could never cow her, nor dominate her, nor have any right over her. This she would maintain until she had proved it. Once it was proved, she was free of him for ever. But she had not proved it yet, neither to him nor to herself. And this was what still bound her to him. She was bound to him, she could not live beyond him. 
she sat up in bed, closely wrapped up, for many hours, thinking endlessly to herself. It was as if she would never have done weaving the great provision of her thoughts. "'It isn't as if he really loved me,' she said to herself. "'He doesn't. Every woman he comes across, he wants to make her in love with him. He doesn't even know that he is doing it, but there he is, before every woman he unfurls his male attractiveness, displays his great desirability. He tries to make every woman think how wonderful it would be to have him for a lover. His very ignoring of the women is part of the game. He is never unconscious of them. He should have been a cockerel, so he could strut before fifty females all his subjects. But really, his Don Juan does not interest me. I could play Donna Juanita a million times better than he plays Juan. He bores me, you know. His maleness bores me. Nothing is so boring, so inherently stupid and stupidly conceited. Really, the fathomless conceit of these men. It is ridiculous, the little strutters. They are all alike. Look at Birkin, built out of the limitation of conceit they are, and nothing else. Really, nothing but their ridiculous limitation and intrinsic insignificance could make them so conceited. As for Lurker, there is a thousand times more in him than in a Gerald. Gerald is so limited. There is a dead end to him. He would grind on at the old mills for ever. And really there is no corn between the millstones any more. They grind on and on when there is nothing to grind, saying the same things, believing the same things, acting the same things. Oh, my God, it would wear out the patience of a stone. I don't worship Lurker. But at any rate he is a free individual. He is not stiff with conceit of his own maleness. He is not grinding dutifully at the old mills. Oh, God, when I think of Gerald and his work, those offices at Beldover, and the mines, it makes my heart sick. What have... I to do with it, and him thinking he can be a lover to a woman. One might as well ask it of a self-satisfied lamp-post. These men with their eternal jobs, and their eternal mills of God that keep on grinding at nothing. It is too boring, just boring. 
However did I come to take him seriously at all? At least in Dresden one will have one's back to it all, and there will be amusing things to do. It will be amusing to go to these eurythmic displays, and the German opera, the German theatre. It will be amusing to take part in German bohemian life. And Lurker is an artist. He is a free individual. One will escape from so much. That is the chief thing. Escape so much hideous, boring repetition of vulgar actions, vulgar phrases, vulgar postures. I don't delude myself that I shall find an elixir of life in Dresden. I know I shan't. But I shall get away from people who have their own homes, and their own children, and their own acquaintances, and their own this, and their own that. I shall be among people who don't own things, and who haven't got a home and a domestic servant in the background, who haven't got a standing and a status, and a degree, and a circle of friends of the same. Oh, God! The wheels within wheels of people! It makes one's head tick like a clock, with a very madness of dead mechanical monotony and meaninglessness. How I hate life! How I hate it! How I hate the Geralds, that they can offer one nothing else! Shortlands! Heavens! Think of living there one week, then the next, and then the third! No! I won't think of it. It is too much. And she broke off, really terrified, really unable to bear any more. The thought of the mechanical succession of day following day, day following day ad infinitum, was one of the things that made her heart palpitate with a real approach of madness. The terrible bondage of this tick-tack of time, this twitching of the hands of the clock, this eternal repetition of hours and days. Oh, God, it was too awful to contemplate. And there was no escape from it, no escape. She almost wished Gerald were with her to save her from the terror of her own thoughts. Oh, how she suffered, lying there alone, confronted by the terrible clock, with its eternal tick-tack! All life, all life, resolved itself into this tick-tack, 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 then the striking of the hour, then the tick-tack, tick-tack and the twitching of the clock-fingers. Gerald could not save her from it. He, his body, his motion, his life, it was the same ticking, the same twitching across the dial, a horrible, mechanical twitching forward over the face of the hours. 
What were his kisses, his embraces? She could hear their tick-tack, tick-tack. <laughs> she laughed to herself, so frightened that she was trying to laugh it off. <laughs> oh, how maddening it was, to be sure, to be sure. Then, with a fleeting, self-conscious motion, she wondered if she would be very much surprised, on rising in the morning, to realise that her hair had turned white. She had felt it turning white so often, under the intolerable burden of her thoughts and her sensations. Yet there it remained, brown as ever, and there she was herself, looking a picture of health. Perhaps she was healthy. Perhaps it was only her unabatable health that left her so exposed to the truth. If she were sickly, she would have her illusions, imaginations. As it was, there was no escape. She must always see and know and never escape. She could never escape. There she was, placed before the clock-face of life, and if she turned round as in a railway station to look at the bookstall, still she could see, with her very spine, she could see the clock, always the great white clock-face. In vain she fluttered the leaves of books, or made statuettes in clay. She knew she was not really reading, she was not really working, she was watching the fingers twitch across the eternal, mechanical, monotonous clock-face of time. She never really lived, she only watched. Indeed, she was like a little twelve-hour clock, vis-à-vis -vis with the enormous clock of eternity. There she was, like dignity and impudence, or impudence and dignity. The picture pleased her. Didn't her face really look like a clock-dial, rather roundish and often pale and impassive? She would have got up to look in the mirror, but the thought of the sight of her own face that was like a twelve-hour clock-dial filled her with such deep terror that she hastened to think of something else. Oh, why wasn't somebody kind to her? Why wasn't there somebody who would take her in their arms, and hold her to their breast, and give her rest, pure, deep, healing rest? Oh, why wasn't there somebody to take her in their arms and fold her, safe and perfect for sleep. She wanted so much this perfect enfolded sleep. She lay always so unsheathed in sleep. She would lie always unsheathed in sleep, unrelieved, unsaved. Oh, how could she bear it? this endless unrelief, this eternal unrelief. Gerald, 
Could he fold her in his arms and sheathe her in sleep? Ha! He needed putting to sleep himself, poor Gerald. That was all he needed. What did he do? He made the burden for her greater. The burden of her sleep was the more intolerable when he was there. He was an added weariness upon her unripening nights, her unfruitful slumbers. Perhaps he got some repose from her. Perhaps he did. Perhaps this was what he was always dogging her for, like a child that is famished, crying for the breast. Perhaps this was the secret of his passion, his forever unquenched desire for her, that he needed her to put him to sleep, to give him repose. What then? Was she his mother? Had she asked for a child, whom she must nurse through the nights, for her lover? She despised him. She despised him. She hardened her heart. An infant crying in the night, this Don Juan. Oh, but how she hated the infant crying in the night. She would murder it gladly. She would stifle it and bury it as Hetty Sorrell did. No doubt Hetty Sorrell's infant cried in the night. No doubt Arthur Donnithorne's infant would. Ha! Huh! The Arthur Donnithorns, the Geralds of this world, so manly by day, yet all the while such a crying of infants in the night. Let them turn into mechanisms, let them. Let them become instruments, pure machines, pure wills, that work like clockwork, in perpetual repetition. Let them be this. Let them be taken up entirely in their work. Let them be perfect parts of a great machine, having a slumber of constant repetition. Let Gerald manage his firm. There he would be satisfied, as satisfied as a wheelbarrow that goes backwards and forwards along a plank all day. She had seen it. The wheelbarrow, the one humble wheel, the unit of the firm. Then the cart with two wheels, then the truck with four, then the donkey engine with eight, then the winding engine with sixteen, and so on, till it came to the miner, with a thousand wheels, and then the electrician with three thousand, and the underground manager with twenty thousand, and the general manager with a hundred thousand little wheels, working away to complete his make-up. And then Gerald, with a million wheels and cogs and axles. Poor Gerald! Such a lot of little wheels to his make-up. He was more intricate than a chronometer watch. But, oh, heavens, 
What weariness! What weariness, God above! A chronometer watch, a beetle. Her soul fainted with utter ennui from the thought. So many wheels to count and consider and calculate. Enough! Enough! There was an end to man's capacity for complications, even. Or perhaps there was no end. Meanwhile, Gerald sat in his room, reading. When Gudrun was gone, he was left stupefied with arrested desire. He sat on the side of the bed for an hour, stupefied, little strands of consciousness appearing and reappearing. But he did not move. For a long time he remained inert, his head dropped on his breast. Then he looked up and realised that he was going to bed. He was cold. Soon he was lying down in the dark. But what he could not bear was the darkness. The solid darkness confronting him drove him mad, so he rose and made a light. He remained seated for a while, staring in front. He did not think of Gudrun. He did not think of anything. Then suddenly he went downstairs for a book. He had all his life been in terror of the nights that should come when he could not sleep. He knew that this would be too much for him, to have to face nights of sleeplessness and of horrified watching the hours. So he sat for hours in bed, like a statue, reading. His mind, hard and acute, read on rapidly, his body understood nothing. In a state of rigid unconsciousness he read on through the night till morning, when, weary and disgusted in spirit, disgusted most of all with himself, he slept for two hours. Then he got up, hard and full of energy. Gudrun scarcely spoke to him, except at coffee, when she said, "'I shall be leaving to-morrow.' "'We will go together as far as Innsbruck, for appearance's sake?' he asked. "'Perhaps,' she said. She said, perhaps, between the sips of her coffee, and the sound of her taking her breath in the word was nauseous to him. He rose quickly to be away from her. He went and made arrangements for the departure on the morrow. Then, taking some food, he set out for the day on the skis. Perhaps, he said to the Viet, he would go up to the Marienhutte, perhaps to the village below. To Gudrun this day was full of a promise, like spring. She felt an approaching release, a new fountain of life rising up in her. It gave her pleasure to dawdle through her packing. It gave her pleasure to dip into books, to try on her different garments, to look at herself in the glass. She felt a new lease of life was come upon her, and she was happy like a child, very attractive and beautiful to everybody with her soft, luxuriant figure and her happiness. 
yet underneath was death itself. In the afternoon she had to go out with Lurker. Her tomorrow was perfectly vague before her. This was what gave her pleasure. She might be going to England with Gerald, she might be going to Dresden with Lurker, she might be going to Munich to a girlfriend she had there. Anything might come to pass on the morrow. And today was the white, snowy, iridescent threshold of all possibility. All possibility, that was the charm to her the lovely, iridescent, indefinite charm, pure illusion. All possibility, because death was inevitable, and nothing was possible but death. She did not want things to materialise, to take any definite shape. She wanted suddenly at one moment of the journey to-morrow, to be wafted into an utterly new course, by some utterly unforeseen event or motion, so that, although she wanted to go out with Lurker for the last time into the snow, she did not want to be serious or business-like. And Lurker was not a serious figure, in his brown velvet cap that made his head as round as a chestnut with the brown velvet flaps loose and wild over his ears, and a wisp of elf-like thin black hair blowing above his full elf-like dark eyes, the shiny transparent brown skin crinkling up into odd grimaces on his small-featured face, he looked an odd little boy-man, a bat. But in his figure, in the greeny loden suit, he looked chétif and puny, still strangely different from the rest. He had taken a little toboggan for the two of them, and they trudged between the blinding slopes of snow that burned their now hardening faces, laughing in an endless sequence of quips and jests and polyglot fancies. The fancies were the reality to both of them. They were both so happy tossing about the little coloured balls of verbal humour and whimsicality. Their natures seemed to sparkle in full interplay. They were enjoying a pure game. And they wanted to keep it on the level of a game, their relationship. Such a fine game! Lurker did not take the tobogganing very seriously. He put no fire and intensity into it as Gerald did, which pleased Gudrun. She was weary, oh, so weary, of Gerald's gripped intensity of physical motion. Lurker let the sledge go wildly and gaily like a flying leaf and when, at a bend, he pitched both her and him out into the snow, he only waited for them both to pick themselves up unhurt off the keen white ground, to be laughing and pert as a pixie. She knew he would be making ironical, playful remarks as he wandered in hell, if he were in the humour, and that pleased her immensely. It seemed like a rising above the dreariness of actuality, the monotony of contingencies. They played till the sun went down, in pure amusement, 
careless and timeless. Then, as the little sledge twirled riskily to rest at the bottom of the slope, "'Wait!' he said suddenly, and he produced from somewhere a large thermos-flask, a packet of kekse, and a bottle of schnapps. "'Oh, Lurker!' she cried. "'What an inspiration! What a comble de joie, indeed! What is the schnapps?' He looked at it and laughed. "'Heidelbeer,' he said. "'No, from the bilberries under the snow. Doesn't it look as if it were distilled from snow? Can you—' She sniffed and sniffed at the bottle. "'Can you smell bilberries? Isn't it wonderful? It is exactly as if one could smell them through the snow.' She stamped her foot lightly on the ground. He kneeled down and whistled, and put his ear to the snow. As he did so, his black eyes twinkled up. <laughs> she laughed, warmed by the whimsical way in which he mocked at her verbal extravagances. He was always teasing her, mocking her ways. But as he, in his mockery, was even more absurd than she in her extravagances, what could one do but laugh and feel liberated? She could feel their voices, hers and his, ringing silvery, like bells in the frozen, motionless air of the first twilight. How perfect it was! How very perfect it was! This silvery isolation and interplay! She sipped the hot coffee, whose fragrance flew around them like bees murmuring around flowers in the snowy air. She drank tiny sips of the Heidelbeerwasser. She ate the cold, sweet, creamy wafers. How good everything was! How perfect everything tasted and smelled and sounded! Here, in this utter stillness of snow and falling twilight. "'You are going away to-morrow?' His voice came at last. Yes. There was a pause, when the evening seemed to rise in its silent, ringing pallor, infinitely high, to the infinite which was near at hand. Vohin. That was the question. Vohin. Whither. Vohin. What a lovely word! She never wanted it answered. Let it chime for ever. I don't know, she said, smiling at him. He caught the smile from her. One never does, he said. One never does, she repeated. There was a silence, wherein he ate biscuits rapidly, as a rabbit eats leaves. But— he laughed. Where will you take a ticket to? Oh, heaven! she cried. One must take a ticket. Here was a blow. She saw herself at the wicket at the railway station. Then a relieving thought came to her. She breathed freely. But one needn't go! she cried. Certainly not, he said. 
I mean, one needn't go where one's ticket says. That struck him. One might take a ticket, so as not to travel to the destination it indicated. One might break off and avoid the destination. A point located. That was an idea. Then take a ticket to London, he said. One should never go there. Right, she answered. He poured a little coffee into a tin can. You won't tell me where you will go? he asked. Really and truly, she said, I don't know. It depends which way the wind blows. He looked at her quizzically, then he pursed up his lips like Zephyrus, blowing across the snow. It goes towards Germany, he said. I believe so, she laughed. Suddenly they were aware of a vague white figure near them. It was Gerald. Gudrun's heart leapt in sudden terror, profound terror. She rose to her feet. They told me where you were, came Gerald's voice, like a judgment in the whitish air of twilight. Maria, you come like a ghost, exclaimed Lurker. Gerald did not answer. His presence was unnatural and ghostly to them. Lurker shook the flask, then he held it inverted over the snow. Only a few brown drops trickled out. All gone, he said. To Gerald, the smallish, odd figure of the German was distinct and objective, as if seen through field-glasses, and he disliked the small figure exceedingly. He wanted it removed. Then Lurker rattled the box which held the biscuits. "'Biscuits there are still,' he said, and reaching from his seated posture in the sledge he handed them to Gudrun. She fumbled and took one. He would have held them to Gerald, but Gerald so definitely did not want to be offered a biscuit that Lurker, rather vaguely, put the box aside. Then he took up the small bottle and held it to the light. "'Also there is some schnapps,' he said to himself. Then suddenly he elevated the bottle gallantly in the air, a strange, grotesque figure leaning towards Gudrun, and said, "'Gnädiges Fräulein,' he said. Wohl, there was a crack. The bottle was flying. Lurker had started back. The three stood quivering in violent emotion. Lurker turned to Gerald, a devilish leer on his bright-skinned face. "'Well done,' he said, in a satirical, demoniac frenzy. C'est le sport sans doute. The next instant he was sitting ludicrously in the snow, Gerald's fist having rung against the side of his head. But Lurker pulled himself together, rose, quivering, looking full at Gerald, his body weak and furtive, but his eyes demoniacal with satire. Vive le héros! Vive! But he flinched, as, in a black flash, Gerald's fist came upon him, banged into the other side of his head, and sent him aside like a broken straw. But Gudrun moved forward. She raised her clenched hand high, and brought it down with a great downward stroke 
onto the face and onto the breast of Gerald. A great astonishment burst upon him, as if the air had broken. Wide, wide, his soul opened in wonder, feeling the pain. Then it laughed, turning with strong hands outstretched, at last, to take the apple of his desire. At last he could finish his desire. He took the throat of Gudrun between his hands, that were hard and indomitably powerful. And her throat was beautifully, so beautifully soft, save that within he could feel the slippery cords of her life. And this he crushed, this he could crush. What bliss, oh, what bliss, at last, what satisfaction, at last. The pure zest of satisfaction filled his soul. He was watching the unconsciousness come into her swollen face, watching the eyes roll back. How ugly she was! What a fulfilment! What a satisfaction! How good this was! Oh, how good it was! What a God-given gratification at last! He was unconscious of her fighting and struggling. The struggling was her reciprocal, lustful passion in this embrace. The more violent it became, the greater the frenzy of delight, till the zenith was reached, the crisis. The struggle was overborne, her movement became softer appeased. Lurka roused himself on the snow, too dazed and hurt to get up. Only his eyes were conscious. Monsieur, he said in his thin, roused voice, quand vous aurez fini? A revulsion of contempt and disgust came over Gerald's soul. The disgust went to the very bottom of him. A nausea. Ah, oh, what was he doing? To what depths was he letting himself go? As if he cared about her enough to kill her, to have her life on his hands. A weakness ran over his body, a terrible relaxing, a thaw, a decay of strength. Without knowing, he had let go his grip, and Gudrun had fallen to her knees. Must he see? Must he know? A fearful weakness possessed him. His joints were turned to water. He drifted as on a wind, veered and went drifting away. I didn't want it, really was the last confession of disgust in his soul, as he drifted up the slope, 
weak, finished, only shearing off unconsciously from any further contact. I've had enough. I want to go to sleep. I've had enough. He was sunk under a sense of nausea. He was weak, but he did not want to rest. He wanted to go on and on to the end, never again to stay till he came to the end. That was all the desire that remained to him. So he drifted on and on, unconscious and weak, not thinking of anything, so long as he could keep in action. The twilight spread a weird, unearthly light overhead, bluish rose in colour. The cold blue night sank on the snow. In the valley below, behind, in the great bed of snow, were two small figures. Gudrun dropped on her knees, like one executed, and Lurka sitting propped up near her. That was all. Gerald stumbled on up the slope of snow in the bluish darkness, always climbing, always unconsciously climbing, weary though he was. On his left was a steep slope with black rocks and fallen masses of rock and veins of snow slashing in and about the blackness of rock. Veins of snow slashing vaguely in and about the blackness of rock. Yet there was no sound. All this made no noise. To add to his difficulty, a small, bright moon shone brilliantly just ahead, on the right, a painful, brilliant thing that was always there, unremitting, from which there was no escape. He wanted so to come to the end. He had had enough. Yet he did not sleep. He surged painfully up, sometimes having to cross a slope of black rock that was blown bare of snow. Here he was afraid of falling, very much afraid of falling. And high up here, on the crest, moved a wind that almost overpowered him with a sleep-heavy iciness. Only it was not here the end and he must still go on. His indefinite nausea would not let him stay. Having gained one ridge, he saw the vague shadow of something higher in front. Always higher, always higher. He knew he was following the track towards the summit of the slopes, where was the Marienhutte, and the descent on the other side but he was not really conscious. He only wanted to go on, to go on whilst he could, to move, to keep going, that was all, to keep going until it was finished. He had lost all his sense of place, and yet 
In the remaining instinct of life his feet sought the track where the skis had gone. He slithered down a sheer snow-slope. That frightened him. He had no alpenstock, nothing. But having come safely to rest, he began to walk on in the illuminated darkness. It was as cold as sleep. He was between two ridges in a hollow, so he swerved. Should he climb the other ridge, or wander along the hollow? How frail the thread of his being was stretched! He would, perhaps, climb the ridge. The snow was firm and simple. He went along. There was something standing out of the snow. He approached with dimmest curiosity. It was a half-buried crucifix, a little Christ under a little sloping hood at the top of a pole. He sheared away. Somebody was going to murder him. He had a great dread of being murdered. But it was a dread which stood outside him, like his own ghost. Yet why be afraid? It was bound to happen, to be murdered. He looked round in terror at the snow, the rocking, pale, shadowy slopes of the upper world. He was bound to be murdered. He could see it. This was the moment when death was uplifted, and there was no escape. Lord Jesus, was it then bound to be? Lord Jesus! He could feel the blow descending. He knew he was murdered. Vaguely wandering forward, his hands lifted, as if to feel what would happen. He was waiting for the moment when he would stop, when it would cease. It was not over yet. He had come to the hollow basin of snow, surrounded by sheer slopes and precipices, out of which rose a track that brought one to the top of the mountain. But he wandered unconsciously, till he slipped and fell down. And as he fell, something broke in his soul and immediately he went to sleep. End of chapter 30 Recording by Ruth Golding